This is a Misfit Gamers Studios production. I am your host, Vortex. Find us at cornertablegaming.com. Greetings. Thank you for joining me for episode zero of the Old Gods campaign series. In this episode, I'm going to be discussing the setting and the background, as we really didn't get to start recording until about two or three gaming sessions in. So in this episode, I'm hoping to fill in some of the details that you may be lacking before you jump into the series. After going through all the details, I'll be joined in the studio by Vixie and Kage, who will be introducing their characters and themselves as players in this campaign series, so you'll have a little bit of a background on who they are and what to expect, as well as some things that they want to highlight for you. So first I'd like to start out by describing the setting of the campaign. Right now our heroes find themselves in a very distant land unknown to most, called the Isle of Fawns, a group of seven islands in a very distant land surrounded by almost nothing, very unknown except for those who know the exact trade routes and how to get there. In this distant land, everything is modeled after the Roman era. When I say that, Just as my players do, I want you to understand and imagine not a Rome as historically accurate as you would believe, not the Roman era as true history has painted it. As I told my players in a previous session, think of this as the most Hollywood version of Rome and the Roman Empire and the Roman era that you can think of. Anything from Doctor Who episodes to Monty Python, anywhere that you want to believe. Just imagine the Roman Empire and the Roman era, but in the most Hollywood fashion that you can. This is the best way to describe the setting that they are currently in, and that will become important later, much later down the road, but it is important to make that distinction that this is not ancient Rome as we traditionally know it. The group of islands is known to very little, Um, The main island and the one that our heroes reside on, called Maya, will be where we start this campaign. And when I am joined in the studio with Vixie and Kage in a little bit, they will actually be going over um, a bit more information on the rest of those islands. One thing I would like to point out before I continue about the history is, as with the ancient Romans, and unlike other areas within my realm... This area does not have a high concentration of truly religious people. And what I mean by that is the majority of the NPCs and the majority of the people that our heroes are going to run into are not religious in the sense that they don't believe themselves as followers. They don't believe in reward and punishment for the trivial day-to-day workings of organized religion. In this location, everything is simply understood and explained by the movement of the gods and by the powers beyond the mortal world. So everything as simple as a river flowing downstream or as complicated as a thunderstorm, everything is explained away and just understood to be movement and acts of the gods. And it is taken without question. Some people do follow the guiding and teachings of some of these gods and some do 
hold more reverence for others, such as the farmers will hold reverence to the god of agriculture, as well as the blacksmiths will have their own individual gods that they will look to for guidance and for prosperity, but it is not a relationship as one would consider as a cleric would have in normal D&D fashion, or as a normal follower would have. It is simply an area in which it is understood that the world is because the gods say so, and everything that they interpret around them is explained away by one of the ruling gods. And that does become important more so because that is very unlike anywhere else in my realm that you will find listening to the other series, and it is a challenge that my players in this series will face. Next, I'd like to get into a little bit of the background and history of our heroes and fill you in a little bit on their zero session when we build their background and their characters and give you a little bit of insight into what has already transpired in the gaming session. And then when they join me in the studio, they can continue and giving a little bit better of an explanation of what they've come across so far. So to start out, Our heroes were born in upper middle class, slightly, slightly akin to nobility, but nothing of major note or subsequent power, but definitely in a family that has rubbed shoulders with the higher ups. So they had their own version of a reputation to uphold. At a very young age, our hero Alo, played by Kage, developed an extreme and unique talent for music and an affinity for it that drove him to eventually aspire to become the bard that he is now becoming. His sister, Sophia, learned early on that she had a unique talent understanding the mind of people and understanding how to manipulate people. And eventually she could understand, without really fully understanding it, the notions and the intentions of people, and eventually grew to understand that it was more than just their intentions, but she could actually understand what they were thinking. And she learned that she did have interest in honing that, but she found that she was constantly distracted by having to look after her little brother and basically deal with the antics and shenanigans that he would get himself into. Um, At one point during their teenage years, or actually just before their teenage years, their parents would sign Alo up for performances with their higher class friends and family, and basically do charity events. While he enjoyed it and it allowed him to extend his musical talents, he did tend to get bored with it, and he just wanted to play for the joy of playing, not for political reason. So eventually he would find himself in dive bars thinking he's doing the right thing, but basically getting screwed over by the bartenders who would not pay him and would basically collect all the tips that he should have been getting. And eventually his sister noticed that, wanted to at least get him out of the seedy areas and keep the family's reputation, as well as might as well make some money on the side, right? After a while, they had an opportunity. They met up with a group who explained to them that they were a traveling entertainment group and they could show them the ropes, show them how to get better gigs and get them out of some of the seedier bars. So they ran with this group for a short time and made a little bit of money. But over time, Sophia, who always just had an interest in understanding what was actually going on behind the scenes, would 
start to overhear and listen in on the negotiations that were happening with their group and the managers of these bars. And she noticed several things. One, not only were the group that they were with extremely terrible at negotiating and had no idea what they were doing, she also noticed that they were completely screwing her and Alo out of a lot of the profits. So not only did she think that she could do it better, but she knew she could make more money with it. So with that, that led to them branching off on their own, and it quickly became apparent that Sophia had a gift for negotiation, because it did not take long for them to basically develop their own rhythm and their own clientele, which led them to the biggest aspect of their background, which was their six-year tour around the island Maya. The tour brought them all over the island, but not to every reach, not quite all the way to the south and not quite all the way to the north. They traveled to many, many towns, including the capital on several occasions. They made a lot of money, and they begin to get so well-known that they would even go to a town they hadn't been to yet, and the town would already be in preparation for their arrival. Not full celebrity status, but they were starting to get well-known enough that after six years, people were asking them to come and play when they passed through town, instead of them having to find an opening. But something had been bothering Alo up until this point, and it was something very unique to a bard, and he just couldn't shake it. Normally, in true bardic fashion, most stories that bards find are retold in their own words, in their own voice, in their own way, to capture the excitement. It'll be told with the same facts, the same details, sometimes even the same words, but each bard will take it upon themselves to make it their own, to not take someone else's work in full, but also to make themselves stand out. However, although that this is extremely common everywhere that Alo went, there was something that he did notice over time. There was a collection of stories, of songs, of poems, that no matter where he went, no matter who he heard told it, they were always told in the same way, with the same cadences, the same words, the same dialect. Nothing seemed to ever change. Nothing ever seemed to become personalized. Even when he would recite these, there was only truly one way to recite them. The more and more he found, I should say, the more of these stories that he found that were like this, the more it bugged him, and the more that he realized nobody else had noticed this was also something that just aided him for months and years until eventually they were passing through their hometown and he decided that it was time for a break. He needed to figure out what was going on. So he convinced his sister to go home where they took a one-year hiatus from their tour where he did nothing but research everything that he had found and scoured over every last note and little detail of everything. Every connection and he began to develop this conspiracy that not only were there dozens upon dozens of these renditions of, of stories and poems and songs that were always said the same way but he believed that there was a connection somehow they were all connected and one of the main driving points was that all of these that he found that had been retold the same way they all no matter what type of media or medium they were in they all lacked the same exact type of details Specific names of locations, specific names of people, and specific notations of time. All of these were vague details, unlike any other stories that were as well known 
to bards during this era. Nothing, there are no other stories that are this massive that have so little detail in the bardic world for him. So this consistently nagged at him. And at one point during his one year of study, he came to an epiphany. And he actually believed that he was able, by sheer luck and determination with all of the details, he believed he was able to pinpoint not only the location of one of the stories. He believes that he was able to figure it out. He believed it was on the island itself, the island of Maya, where he was within only a few weeks travel. He told his sister he was leaving. Of course, she wasn't going to let him go alone. And off they went in search of this location that he believes he understood. When they arrived, they... Well, I should stop here and say all of this was so far the backstory of the characters. What I'm about to describe is basically the exact opening to their first official gaming session. As we opened up with that backstory... And here they stood, they've just gotten off their carriage that they bought, and they're on the road staring into a large field. Um, imagine just rolling hills of just lush green land, and then there's just a giant area, kind of a, a slope where all the hills kind of dip down. And in this giant valley that just seems to span miles in one direction off the side of the road, there is a giant field and we're talking hundreds and hundreds of acres of flowers that just span miles. And off in the distance, in the middle of these, this giant field of flowers, is a set of ruins. And these ruins are what Alo believe to be the location that are mentioned in the stories. And he believes that if he can make it here, if he can go there and find the link, he might be able to piece together these stories and potentially elevate himself in the world of bards by being able to expand these stories that no one seems to question. So after some deliberation, they finally decide to leave their valet, who at this point they've forgotten his name so many times that they have chosen to just rename him every single time they mention him. So keep an eye out for that. <laughs> But they leave him with the cart, and they begin their several-mile trek through the field of flowers and attempt to make it to the ruins. Although, without giving anything away, they do realize that this gentle walk through some flowers soon turns into something quite different. And, of course, in D&D fashion, you can't just have a simple walk of flowers be a simple walk through flowers. Needless to say, our heroes adventured. They succeeded in their tasks. Well, I should say they succeeded in passing all of the trials that lay before them in the Field of Flowers. They were able to successfully mitigate their way and made it to the ruins. Once inside, they were very confused. When they finally got to the only ruins that weren't completely demolished in the entire area, and they entered, they were surprised to see a very bare and minimalistic room. The one thing that stood out is against the back wall in this room that only had one entrance was a large, a very, very large carved stone giant that seemed to be kneeling down and pointing at the ground in the corner. Once they approached and investigated a little bit more, it looked like the giant had been, the giant stone statue had been pointing at something almost carved into the ground. After some investigation and some tampering with the statue, they were able to awaken it. And 
and discovered that it was actually the shell of a celestial being, which they were unable, because it does not have its full memory intact, um, unable to tell them what its name was. So affectionately, for the time being, they dubbed the large giant Andre. They had a a lot of good talks with Andre, and they were even able, with his help, to discover... I shouldn't say he, actually. It is a celestial being. But with Andre's help, they were actually able to discover a secret message, a set of quests that were hidden in this ruins. And with Andre's help, they were also able to decipher these ruins, which Kage will explain in a little bit. And this is what set them on the path they are now. The episode that you will start out with, episode one, is actually right after their meeting with the giant, and they've just left outside before they went home. So you'll get to hear all of the aftermath after that. But essentially, this is all leading them to understand more about these stories, more about the missing details. And in fact, Andre was able to fill in a little bit of the details for Aldo, helping him piece together some more of those stories. And we'll get to hear more and more about that as he progresses. But before we get to episode one and the rest of this adventure, stay tuned while I bring in Kage and Vixie into the studio and have a chat about how they decided to make these characters and what really brought this campaign to life. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. In the studio here, I have Vixie and Kage with me today. And we're going to be discussing a little bit about uh, the Old Gods campaign series. We're going to get into a little bit about how we started this series. And kind of give you as an intro into the players behind the characters and the characters themselves that you're going to be hearing about. As you guys already know, they've been through quite a lot. Started out doing a six-year tour. They kind of stumbled across, or Alo stumbled across some kind of conspiracy that he wanted to indulge himself in, which led them to that uh, Valley with the Flowers um, and an introduction into that celestial entity that they have, uh, for the most part, nicknamed Andre for the time being. But uh, we'll get into that later. Um, But yeah, so today we're just going to kind of talk about how we got to where we are, how this all started out, and get to know a little bit about uh, the players behind these characters. So... I guess we will start uh, with Kage, kind of, um, who plays Alo in this series. Yes, indeed. And um, really, the the whole reason why this uh, this campaign started. So, yeah. just kind of give us an idea. What what it was uh, kind what of gave an us accident. that? Like, I didn't realize that asking Vortex a question like this would would blow up into all of this. But we were talking one day about you know. Music and magic and D&D, you know, like you do, just trying to figure out what's going on and... Normal things. I was, I had recently watched uh, one of those cool history documentaries about uh, one of the Greek mythology stories about Orpheus and his lyre, and just listening to how powerful music could actually be, because, you know, this guy went down into hell, and not only through song and music, charmed his way across the River Styx and past Cerberus, went all the way up to meet the King of Hell and get his lady back. 
Now, granted, he was dumb enough to turn around and look back, so he lost everything <laughs> he even went down there for in the first place. But still, the fact that music has that kind of power, like, I wanted to know, like, is it the same here? And upon hearing yes, I was like, I want that. Like, I want that. And so he was like, all right, let's uh, let's do this dance then. So, of course, I found um, the, the time and place in the realm that existed perfectly for this. So we got together and uh, decided, well, how are you going to fit in here? So how did you how did you come up with the idea of Olo? It, it was kind of out of necessity. I was like, all right, what, what kind of person would want to go after this thing? Right. So I knew like why I wanted to to go after this object, this liar that had so much power and ability uh, but why why would a character care that much about it? And I wanted a character filled with, with passion. So I created, like, the bubbliest dude that you can imagine, right? He's just way too friendly. So friendly, you want him to back the heck off, right? But, you know, it was just like, why not have him just love everything and want to just be out there and and clearly this whole thing's about music so you can't not be a bard all right like you can't not be and i mean you know of course i mean when you want to be someone who is that personable that outgoing usually you have people who will develop the the quirky character either the bumbling uh, rogue or even the, the boisterous adventurer the fighter kind of character but i i do agree when you have a bard you really get to have that um that wide open shining personality that charismatic shine i definitely feel that and it's one of the uh the qualities that i rarely get to uh to use because most people find it very annoying so um so let me ask you why i know why you chose this campaign why orpheus the the epic the greek epic of orpheus's liar inspired you why did you choose to become a bard for this character what 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 inspired you to want to be a bard well, especially because you and I were talking about how powerful m- music really can be in the world of D&D. And personally, I feel in the real world, I really wanted to find and play a character that would be able to hone that quite completely. And being a bard is such a unique and some would say difficult thing to do in a land of battle, right? Where you're Absolutely. just this squishy music player, right? Trying to figure out how to survive in the world, you know, monsters and and swords and shields and everything. And I'm just sitting here with my loot saying, okay, uh, yeah, hey, what's going on, guys? Please don't hurt me. But it was a challenge that I felt that it was worth taking on, especially to discover what potential power music had in the magic world. That's that's what drew me to being a bard. And I'm really I'm really glad that you did that because I think from my experience not very many people dive into the power of of music as a magic source. And so you wanting to do that really gave me the opportunity to show the the magical side of my realm and gave it a look at the inspirations that not many people will get the references from at least over time, hopefully uh, by listening, they'll be inspired to kind of listen to more of 
my DM discussions about how I've divided magic in my realm. But yeah, having someone who has chosen to take that path, who has chosen to take the difficult path of being a bard and being a squishy music player and not a fighter, not only is that a great challenge for you to take on, but it was an amazing opportunity for me to be challenged as a DM to give you a campaign that made sense and also challenged you, but didn't detract too much from the actual core concept yeah, of playing that is D&D. not an easy task. So it was, it was it was a lot of fun. So I'm really glad that you chose it. I think it was a worthwhile um, opportunity. Um, so is there anything for the audience here before they really dive in to season one? Is there anything that you'd like to highlight? Any part of the character build about Olo? I mean, we know why you why we started this Greek uh, campaign. Um, or, well, really, they'll they'll find out, or they've already listened, that it is Roman, um, but inspired by the Greek epics. And we know why you chose the Bard for the challenge, and because it made more sense with the reason why that we started this, with Orpheus's Liar being the pre- you know the predecessor. Um, but is there any aspects about your character build that you would like to point out or highlight that you think the audience should keep in mind moving forward? Things that either are subtle that you feel might have been too subtle at first, or just other spots that you personally feel are things that make your character really stand out? Well, first, I want to say, um, please be patient with me. This is only my second uh, character in D&D. Uh, so, like... Not just my realm, yeah. just D&D in general, correct? Uh, well, third, third. Third. Third character D&D in general, I'd say. But I mean, like, I'm still not used to becoming my character. Um, in the beginning, it's a little rough, so bear with me, you know, trying to play my character and who I am. But I think one of the biggest things that I want to highlight about who Alo is is he's very he's very much a a compassionate person and he is driven by that compassion and passion for other people and which is why I think it was uh really awesome that one of the things that he got to have as his foundation was his relationship with his sister and how he kind of made that connection with her and I think that was the biggest thing for him. And that's fantastic. I think those are definitely key points that, that are absolutely key to Alo is throughout his character development in season one, you will get to see that his relationship with his sister is really a focal point of his molding and becoming something better. Is It's not so much that she controls it, but she is a major influence on what Alo becomes. And I, and I do think that that is something that everybody should pay attention to. Um, speaking of which, uh, that is actually a great segue into introducing the um, other player of our campaign and our other hero, um, our other star. So, played by Vixie, we have Sophia. Yay, Sophia! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Sophia is actually um, a, a fantastic character, really, really strong character development throughout season one i think um definitely a lot of great movement there so um i i think we all would be really interested to figure out now that we know why this whole thing started from the the epic concept of orpheus's liar and kage was really good at bringing to the table a 
pretty solid idea of a character. So when we got this group together and we brought you in on it, wanting to try to develop this campaign, what really inspired you to make Sophia? What, you know, what was the how and the why behind that character build and how you got to this point? Well, I think for me personally, you know, I, I grew up on Disney movies, of course, and, you know, Hercules was always a good 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 movie <laughs> I, yeah, I probably watched way too much of but you know the the biggest thing was that it was i really liked how they portrayed the muses as you know introducing that story and then kind of just popping up here and there throughout the story and when we started talking about doing a, a greek inspired campaign because in the beginning it wasn't really roman based it was we were still in concept still discussing greek you know greek type of of ties and origins and you know when i was thinking about what kind of character i wanted to make it was you know i i have quite a few other characters that i play within this this realm with vortex and I mean, out of Ness, all of them. Sylvanas, <laughs> Nadia, Sophia, Summer. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So when well, so I have so many characters, and all each of them, they all have their own type of of thing. Like they had a purpose that they were being made for. And so when I when I thought about making another character, at first it was kind of like, oh god, another character. You know, <laughs> but not not in a bad sense. It's just kind of like a well, what else can I do? Like you know, I've covered so much i have an archer i have a fighter i have like a swordsman kind of you know i have kind of like a a, a hand not quite a rogue but you know like priority kind of thing so it's like where else can i go with this and when you know there's been a few times throughout just all of our gaming history where you know vortex had mentioned the psionicist class and that's Something that's always been kind of interesting, kind of like in the background. It's it's definitely a lot of a lot of new ways to learn how to game. When for you... for both player and DM that I'm learning, because I fell in love with the Psionicist when I was gaming in my DM's realm, and DMing it is a whole different game. <laughs> right. So when I started considering this uh, Muse idea. And then I was thinking about it, I'm like, well, if I'm a muse and I want to be influential and I want to be able to, like, kind of eventually have that character evolve into a person of influence and 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 guidance and, and all the things that a muse usually falls within and, and whatever pathway you take. Because, you know, there's there's muses of many different aspects. And in, in if you look up Greek mythology, I can't remember all of them right now, but, like, each type of thing within the arts and communication all that stuff there's a muse for almost everything oh absolutely so so when Alo mentioned this story about this bard and how he was actually going to play a bard you know i kind of found that a muse would really fit with that storyline because his character's going around with the arts the music which falls within a category that a muse would fall within but it would also give the character not just a, a a beginning sense of purpose but also something that could be built upon after the fact so it's like she can spend this time with this other character because at that point we hadn't decided yet that they were going to be brother and sister but 
you know, this character that could start out with this other person and maybe slowly hone these skills of being a muse because she's not she's not a real one because real muses in in the in the mythology were born of Zeus and um, actual immortals or a higher in D and D respect. Yeah, so it's like she's not a real muse, but she could maybe try and do things that would work towards maybe eventually being considered one, you know, in, in sort of a, a half, half-assed, half you know, <laughs> attempt. Maybe, you know, eventually getting the the attention of a god or something and be like, hey, you no, know, I, I'm... Right? Like, you know, there's so many possibilities with this character and the expansion of her. So then it was like, okay, well, if I'm going to run a muse character, what class should I play? Because they're, you know, they could be fighters, you know, but for the most part, they really stick mainly within the ones at least that I was looking at mainly stick within the arts and communication and all the things that are not fighters. Yeah. So then it became, okay, well, what class do I play? Because, you know, you could play like a rogue and be sneaky and not necessarily have to fight all the time, but you know, they don't really work towards the whole influencing and, 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 and you can edit out all these things. <laughs> and, 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 and. <laughs> but yeah, a rogue doesn't really fit in that kind of storyline. And and drawing back on what I said before, where, you know, you had always talked about, you, Vortex, had always talked about the Sionicists, I thought maybe, you know, maybe that could be the new thing I try. Maybe I try a new class. Maybe I try something that can... Some out, out of your element. Yeah, something out of my element. Because those of you who are not familiar with the Sionicist class... They are all mental abilities based. Um, but mental powers, just telekinesis, telepathy, being able to manipulate the world around you through direct interference with your mind and not through magic. Right. So are we saying Master Charles Xavier? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, yeah, kind of like that, you know, Jean Grey even, like you could go, there's so many routes you can go because there's so much to do. Yeah, depending on what you want to focus on, it's it's kind of like being a mage where you can take you have access to a lot, but you can choose to focus on any particular study and become very proficient or kind of a jack of jack of all trades. Right. So when I built her, we went first. We start out with the route of the telepathy uh, discipline within the Sionesis, uh scope, and all of that let her as a starting point be able to mentally communicate read people's thoughts. Which is really a good start for someone who is inspired by a muse. Being able to understand people better and being able to get inside their head is always fundamentally a good start. Yeah, and then when we when we started making the story and we decided that we were going to be brother and sister, it made even more sense because she, you know, we, we I think we decided that it was going to be that we were twins Mm-hmm. So it would make sense that a, a mental gift might come of a unique situation like that. Absolutely. Especially considering your, you know, all those natural talent and affinity for music. Like, it goes almost hand in hand. Absolutely. No, no, it absolutely does. I'm glad that you brought that up because for the modeling of the Greek epic, I was really hoping for a tie-in like that. Now, I do want to take this opportunity real quick before before you continue to mention that I did not originally plan for your characters. You, 
Kage asked for... No, you didn't even ask for a Greek campaign. What you said was, I really liked this thing. I want that liar. I, I liked this thing. <laughs> like, yes. I want that liar. That's all he said to me was, I want this liar. Give me. So, I found... <laughs> and yes, because I built my realm off of a lot of pop culture and a lot of history and myth and legend, because it's easy and I'm lazy... Uh, so, although I do always modify it to my realm to make more sense, so based on a true story kind of concept. But yeah, so I did that, and yes, of course, something as famous as the Greek epics do exist in some form or another or in reference in my realm. So when he said he wanted to go after that liar, I had to figure out, based on a time frame that I thought was appropriate, um, where to put him. So we developed that, but I did not say that this was going to be a Bard Sionis' campaign. Never once did I expect that. I said, he asked me, can I go after that liar? I said, sure, we can. You're in a Roman setting because that's where it exists. That's basically where we are. Create your characters. He decided to be a bard. Then she decided to be a psionicist. FML, right? For all my DMs out there, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so, what the interjection I wanted to make, because this was not my doing, and you've touched on it a couple times, and you were just getting into a great explanation. <laughs> what made y'all decide to be brother and sister? What When we did session zero and really developed our the backstories between your two characters, what was the deciding factor that really allowed, that, that really made sense to you guys? Why brother and sister and not best friends or colleagues or randoms? Personally... Because we're pretty much already there in real life anyways. <laughs> I mean, so, <laughs> I mean, it kind of just made sense-ish for me. It, it it felt right. It almost felt like it was already happening while we were sitting there creating our characters. Anyways. Right. <laughs> we kinda were sitting did. there in the moment and just trying to figure out what the heck we wanted to do. And I was like, oh, I could do this with my character. Oh, you could do that with yours. And then we were just going back. But I was like, this is what siblings would do you know talk and having conversations like this and so it just fit it it just seemed right to me well and i mean and you know it's not uncommon to have stories or ethics or or you know even just Greek-based things that have to do with siblings and shenanigans yeah. that ensue <laughs> you know not that we're going the full greek route but you know just saying it kind of just fit on all aspects. I, I absolutely agree. There is no argument from me over here. <laughs> um, but absolutely. You you guys coming up with that, I think, was one of the best game, with no pun intended, game changers, is when you guys <laughs> decided to be brother and sister, so many things fell into place. So many things just, the, the, the campaign made way more sense. Um, and through that, um, before we, we, we get into the last part about um, Safia's highlights and some of the things that our audience should know um, about Safia going forward, one thing I do want to point in that we, we chose to skip on all those description, because Kage decided how to build Olo out, and Vixie then created Safia, through that development, they both and decided geez. during the Zero session that the <laughs> relationship of brother and sister totally made sense. And through that, we began developing the characters, rolling for stats, and deciding initial powers. And then, of course, what always ends up happening, Vixie ended up starting to go through and read out loud some of the powers that she was getting. 
And of course, Kage was like, but wait, what? Because they were cool powers. Come on, man. <laughs> so, like, of course, he's just like, but wait a minute. Like, what? Can I not do any of that? And so, of course, being the DM that I am, I'm like, I was sister. like, wait a we're second. We're sister, right? I mean, so being like, the DM that I am, there's a chance. Um, I ironically, and for anybody who pays attention to the series long enough knows why I say this is ironically, because this is not the DM that I normally am. Um, I checked the book. Because <laughs> normally I don't do that. But I checked the book. And absolutely, in a psionics book, for those that aren't psionics, it actually states that there is a percentage chance that anyone can have what they call wild psionics. And so based off the book's rules, I said, fine. It totally makes sense that you would make this role because your sister, you guys decided to be brother and sister. Your sister got psionics. Why wouldn't you be able to get at least one? And now, granted, by the book, normally you get a roll to even see if you can have wild psionics. If you do, which all have succeeded, God knows how, he was able to roll on the wild psionics table. Normally, you roll, you get a wild psionic, you get enough PSP to cast it, um, I think like three times. Something like that. Yeah. And that's about it. You, you get, And you also by benefit, get any prerequisites that that psionic needs. Plus the PSP needed. For, no, I don't think it's three casts. I think it's any PSP needed to maintain it for X number oh, of yeah, rounds. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But needless to say, mm-hmm. Kage rolled, and lo and behold, he rolled the, like, one of three numbers off yeah. of a percentile roll. I think it was like 97 to 100%. That allowed him to roll three times for psionics, which gave him three wild psionics, a really big PSP pool that just dwarfed Sophia's right out the gate. Um, and ironically, ironically though, none of them had prerequisites, so yeah, bad on him that for was, that. that was... And they were all personal psionics. They only manipulate yourself. You cannot use your psionics for any other purpose than yourself. Yeah. So, yeah. so Olo has some wild psionics. Before we get back to Sophia, now that this is a good segue, let's just uh, go over really quick. What can Olo do? All right, let's uh, let's go over some of these. So he has three wild psionics. Uh, the first one is reduction, and basically, what I can do is I can shrink myself. I can shrink just one part of myself, just my finger, just my pinky, just one leg, or I can just do it to the entirety of my body. Um, I can do it up to, I believe it is less than an inch and a half. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a pretty significant shrink, but... There is a caveat. If I critically fail that one, then I'm pretty sure I double in size for an hour. And the only way for me to stop that before that hour is to recast it successfully. So, that's a thing. So, that's a thing. Um, also, I have Totally body... never cause problems ever. You know? No, no. <laughs> and no. of course, like Ant-Man, that power is only ever used in combat. Exactly. Um, it's fine. But then the next this one is, is uh, body equilibrium. 
Ooh, one of my favorites, actually. It's very... Especially because I don't remember... I, I, at this point, I don't know what episode it's in, but how y'all fucking used it. Yeah. It, uh, in in, in yeah. Uh, boss battle, or just before leading up to the boss battle, how y'all decided to use it, golden. Brilliant. Y'all will love it. That's probably, like, episode, like, four through ten, somewhere. To, I, I don't know. I haven't gotten that far yet in editing. Believe me, you'll love it. It's great. So... So what happens is body equilibrium basically states that my body weight is just enough to stand on any surface. Like, so if I'm stepping on water, then my foot will just stand on the water just so that it doesn't break the way. I can walk on any surface. So you do not have control over how much you weigh. Correct. However, it's directly proportional, proportional, I believe, to the tension weight of the surface you're standing on. Whatever surface I'm standing so on. So you will never break, regardless of the surface you're standing on, this power will never allow you to break its tension surface. So Correct. a tree branch, like yep. you mentioned, water. Um, I'm not going to mention the other thing that you guys used in-game because that'll be a surprise. <laughs> um, but basically, if you can stand on it, you don't break, fall through, or whateverly disturb whatever it is you're standing on. Yes, that definitely that and uh I love that power it, it it's kind of dope and like you said i'm really excited for y'all to hear about what, what we do with it um and the last one i only got to use once but it was kind of cool is a uh, ectoplasmic form and uh it basically turns me into this incorporeal ghost like creature that can phase through things it's dope Go through, I believe, most objects at reduced speed, and you can't be hit. You can't attack. Yes. But, and I believe, does that, is that the one that also gives you the ability to fall safely? Not that one. Is it that one or equilibrium that allowed you to basically use it like feather fall? It was, uh, uh, it was body equilibrium. Body, oh, body so, equilibrium. So another benefit yeah. of body equilibrium is if you are not on a surface, and you cast body equilibrium... In a, in essence, it it's a byproduct of it acts as if it were the spell Featherfall. So you can cast Body Equilibrium yep. when in free fall and safely land, correct? Yes. It says, uh, if the character is fall... Oh, it's cut off right after that, but yeah. Yes, it, so it, that's so the, it's Body Equilibrium. Yes, Body okay. Equilibrium. So yeah, so, so based on the fact that y'all were brother and sister and the very successful roles that Kage made during character creation... You were allowed to rack up three wild psionics. Indeed. Congratulations. Somehow. Um, although he's only ever gotten to use like two of them ever. But three? Three? Well, I, I mean, one, one, one didn't really work, and the yeah. other two kind of. The, the, okay, one kind of worked, one worked, and then one was phenomenal. One was That's really all we can say. Um, okay, so, so going back, so back to Sophia. So now we understand why we're here. We understand how you're all characters, you know, came together, why you guys created them as brother and sister. We understand a little bit more about what we should pay paying attention to with Olo. But with Sophia, obviously everyone's going to have their own interests in what you all do. But Vixie, what is your interpretation of Sophia? What are some of the highlights that you think our audience should pay attention to? Anything that you want to um, point out about her character build or anything 
even just the development over season one, is there anything that you want them to pay attention to that you think is worth noting or special about Sophia? I think, you know, I... It's really funny because I usually play a character of evil alignment. And with this character, I'm really going to try to play that middle ground because she's a lawful neutral, I believe. But at least that's my attempt is to keep her in that, that neutral ground. So that way I feel like is the optimum way to be a muse who can assist many, not just one, but many. So it's like, you know, depending on how it goes, and as I'm learning more about psionics, there's, there's, there actually happens to be quite a few that can lead you toward evil. Like, even the spells themselves that can twist your, your, your character's perspective and an alignment in using it. And as, in, as a good example, Life Drain. If anybody has the psionics handbook or wants to look it up, Life Drain is definitely one of those ones that will quickly turn you. I use that one as an example because we don't touch upon it in this campaign, at least as of yet. Um, so it's an easy example not to give anything away. But if you have access to the Cyanox Handbook or can look it up online, that is one of the few Cyanox that will absolutely turn your ass evil. True. Well, or you and... have to be evil. I'm sorry. Is it you no, have to be evil both. to cast it? It's both. You 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 have to be evil to learn it. And if you're not evil and you learn it, you will turn evil. Like it it doesn't specifically outline how instantaneous or how uh, DM progressive. Yeah, D- definitely up to DM discretion, but. You know, it's, it's, especially when you talk about uh, alignment and all that stuff, like, evil is not just doing bad things, it's being selfish, it's doing things for your own self-interest, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So that's why it's going to be really interesting to watch this character and see if I, it's really a challenge to me as a player to see how well I can stay on that middle ground and try to minimize and or you know, eliminate, you know, the those types of aspects that would be more tuned towards an evil alignment character. So we'll see how that goes. Um, and I'm really interested to see how this, how, how she evolves just as a character, because um, as part of like the summary recap, you know, she, she followed her brother along on this whole like crazy adventure because he was running around with his talents and and doing quite poorly and getting ripped off and all this stuff and so she kind of like became his like his manager almost which I'm i think not is fantastic savvy with money okay like not at all. i'm just savvy with people that's okay, it so again you may have heard this in the in the recap but i just want to touch on it again remember all those started by just wanting to play music and his brilliant idea was because he's so humble and doesn't even though he lived middle class he thought, hey, let me just go to these dive bars that let me play for free and play for these people and whatever. And then his sister's I'm like, just friendly, okay. like, nah, y- you could do so much more. But it was really getting picked up by that traveling group that was going around your town. After having been with them, that's really what changed your mind. Because after hearing all of the negotiations, you're just like, these guys are just scumbags. I can negotiate better. Right. <laughs> and and that's what really led to y'all's six-year tour of the island because you realized, like, these guys are really only holding us back. My brother's the star of the show now. They're skimping out on our payment. And really, these guys don't know how to talk to people because you've spent most of your life realizing that you can manipulate people simply by the words you use, by understanding what they're thinking. And... 
you really just said, hey, I could get us better better gigs, more money, we could live better, and I really do need to keep you out of trouble. Yeah, that'd probably be helpful. <laughs> so so that kind of led to that six-year tour. Beat up that one time. But over that right. time, of course, <laughs> Alo couldn't help himself, and he found something that he just couldn't let go. Listen, he is also a very particular individual, alright? Like, he may be a little sporadic when it comes to, like, social interactions, but his mind is very, very organized. And when he notices something, you can't unnotice it. So, when I see a pattern that repeats itself over and over and over again, and everyone, people that have never met each other, people I've never met are telling stories exactly the same way that I tell it. How? Right. And how it's is not nobody, very bardic. And how it is not very bardic. Everyone has their own everyone has their own flair. Except, Except for certain stories. You you can how can you not notice that? But no and one so does, I, except except for Olo. So we're gonna have to find out what why what what does that do? What what does Olo do with this knowledge except for go home, spend a year trying to decipher this conspiracy, and and decide, you know what? I found something. I think. I in fact I am certain I know where one of these locations is. In fact, I believe it exists here on this island, I believe is what Olo said. Yeah. And that would bring us to you deciding to just leave and go, I'm following this. Sis, you want to come? Great. If not, I'm out. I got to go here. I'm pretty sure you were just like, no, you're going to get in trouble. Right. Basically, you're going to get yourself killed, and then I'm going to be in trouble for it, so obviously I have to go with you, So just to make sure that you actually come home. <laughs> Which brings us to you traveling out of your town, going a couple, you know, I think it was like a couple days, up to a week um, yep. travel, but you guys made it in a couple days. And we got you to the point where everyone heard about, you know, you guys had, the, you were in front of the field, you had to traverse through the field, go through a couple psionic battles. Luckily, and again, none of this, they didn't know anything about what was a front in front of them before they created their characters. So the fact that you all decided what you did, and more specifically, going back to the psionic build, when psionics are first built, you get a defense. And, it, and every time you level up, you'll automatically get a new defense, which is great. It's one of the things I love about Psionesis is you don't have to intentionally plan for building your defense with your XP. It just happens. But I want to go back to that. Do you remember when we first built the Psionesis, what was the first defense that you, before we decided to move forward with actually gaming, what was the defense that you chose? Um, I actually chose Intellect Fortress, which is not... Just a personal defense. It actually has a three-yard radius around her. So when she does Intellect Fortress, description from the book, it calls forth the powers of the ego and the superego to stop attacks. So unlike other defenses, uh, Intellect Fortress has an area of effect beyond this, the mind that's using it. Um, and it provides protection to other minds within that radius. So it doesn't just protect her when she when she erects this this defense. It also protects those within a three yard radius, which usually is her brother. <laughs> and I mean, three yard radius, which means that it's a six yard diameter circle, but three yards, th you know, that's nine feet. So you have an eighteen foot sphere of mental blockade. I I asked that because do y'all? It's been a while. 
But y'all remember what happened when y'all tried to traverse that field of flowers? Yeah, roughly. Roughly. I mean, Olo doesn't. No, to this day, Olo, I don't think he knows anything Olo that really doesn't understand what happened. He doesn't really understand. He was just but, like... But Sophia does. Oh, some yeah. pretty flowers. Because cool. everyone got in the description that you all started this campaign at the Field of Flowers and you traversed through it. And all they really got to hear was that y'all went through some psionic challenges. And that's really all I told them. Do you want to elaborate at all on what those psionic challenges were? And, and, and how maybe this completely decided chosen defense of yours completely separate to after i built this campaign maybe some info on how that worked uh, right so we you know we just go wandering into this field of flowers and when, and when we talk about flowers They're just flowers no i don't want you to think just these tiny little things that are like what maybe even like ankle when, high. When you first entered the field, they were a, a, about ankle high, maybe mid calf. Yeah. So you walk in, you're like, oh, okay, this is like a wildflower field, you know, whatever. It's fine. And, and I want to point out because no one got the description is when you look across this field, all the flowers are. It's just like an even field of flowers. Like rarely do you see patches of flowers taller than the others. It's just this nice flat field of flowers all the way out until. In the distance, there's some ruins in a clearing in the middle of the flowers. So as we continued to traverse through the flowers, so the farther that we went into them, it, it slowly became apparent that the while the flowers had looked even at, at the top level, like the ground didn't really follow that way. So we quickly found out as we as we got maybe a couple miles into it that eventually miles, miles. that is correct. Mm-hmm. We got a couple miles into it and. We, we suddenly, you know, made our perception checks, but realized that the flowers weren't just at our ankles anymore. They were actually, like, head level or higher. And it was just a little unsettling, to, to say Why the least. Why did it take me that long to notice that? <laughs> well, so through that whole first initial bit, like, there wasn't really too much uh, psionic activity. But right about that time when we made that determination that but suddenly the flowers something was weird. Paper. Something was weird. Something not normal is happening here is when really that Sophia got the first when you have a, a mind that's mentally aware, I guess, in, in the sense of psionics. When you're a psionicist and another psionicist attempts to attack you, you notice. Because when you're a psionicist, you naturally defend yourself. You naturally put this barrier around your mind. So if another psionicist attempts to contact you or get into your mind, you notice, and you have the choice to allow them in, uh, but if you're not a psionicist, go right in. So when she felt that, she thought, like, oh, you know, wow, that's weird. Like, it, I, I, I feel like in all of their travels and all their backstory and all the things, either it hasn't happened or was so random and infrequent or rare that, you know, she knows what it means, but not necessarily has a lot of experience on what to do in regards to it but she figured that you know being highly intelligent that she is i think she has like a 20 or something in her in her intellect but <laughs> you know yes. she she just always errs on the side of caution so she erected uh, uh, chose to use the intellect fortress defense <clears throat> so that it would shield her mind and also her brothers because if it happened to her then more more than likely it's probably going to happen to both of them if it hasn't already you know and legit i was just dancing around and, enjoying my 
time. That, but that, that definitely makes more sense, too, is that it is a very good power to choose, is one that protects you and others. But most psionicists usually start out solo. They usually start out as their own person. So the fact that you guys are brother and sister led to a better decision for right. that. And in this particular case, it truly benefited you because once you started realizing that these challenges were happening, it quickly became apparent that these challenges weren't just directed at you. Right. So then we found out, <clears throat> because the way that Intellect Fortress works is that it's a, it's a, it's a constant. I pay a, a cost to have it uh, to persist through certain time periods or right. until canceled kind of thing. And, and what it does is where a non-psionicist wouldn't have any defense against a psionic attack or um, a contact, Intellectual Fortress allows non-psionicists in the, air, in, in, the re, in the bubble or in the radius to equal your defense role, correct? Right. They don't have their own, they share yours, but everybody rolls individually. Right, so it gave us a, just an ongoing ability to have defense against any future attacks and hopefully maybe, per, you know, dissuade whoever was attacking them if they, you know, could tell that maybe there's a barrier there that maybe they should stop because, you know, you never know what the capabilities of another psionicist is just by a small interaction like that. Absolutely. So it's also it's definitely a two way street. So you know, they they continue to proceed forwards and you know, there was a few more uh, attacks that did try to come through and you know Sophia being a natural psionicist, she was able to defend against them, not really be affected by them. But Alo, on the other hand, <laughs> even with the defense, he still had a harder time uh, preventing himself from being influenced I did have a much by... better chance than if she hadn't at all. Oh, you had I no chance just... without True. it. I would have just and, been And that's screwed. why I pointed this out, is it's amazing that I had built these challenges before you guys even created the characters. And the fact that your character design built towards this i think again just shows the great collaborative ability because i did not tell them what challenges they would face and they didn't tell me the ideas of their characters until we had that zero session and we built and we built the characters but the challenges were already there so the fact that you chose that just really makes all of season one really much stronger because everything you guys chose to do i didn't intentionally try to make everything match that the fact that you guys chose that and it just passed these challenges the way that they did, I think just, even though it was coincidence, I think just made for an excellent um, storyline and an exact excellent progress through season one. But yeah, fantastic choice on that defense, simply because, yeah, you guys would have had so much difficulty, if, if at all, because I believe the challenges were essentially, the first challenge was just trying to creep you guys out and get you guys to willingly walk away. The next one was to essentially aggressively get you try to walk away um, and, and really just make sure that you felt threatened. And then the final test, I think you guys found out afterwards, because you guys passed through all of these with like flying colors. No, it was that last one. That was really the, the that was when it really became a, oh God, we have to get out of here, but not in a turn around, get out of here. It's a, we need to keep going forward faster and clear right. this field because the last one was uh 
basically the the last ditch effort kind of thing. Like if I can't get you to leave, then I'm gonna get you to stay right, right. where you're at. So forever. so essentially, the, the first two challenges the, the the field the psionic attacks were to get you in some way or another, whether it was intentionally or aggressively, to um, get you to leave on your own. The final attack was fine. If you're not going to leave on your own, the final ditch effort that you guys found out out of game after the fact was that if it had succeeded, if you weren't going to leave on your own, it was going to make you forget why you came here in the first place. Right, and that was starting to happen to Olo because he, he was really being affected after the second attack and onwards, and there was a certain point where you know he kind of just stopped and was just kind of like a what are, what are we doing out a little like bit. what happened yep. like why are we why are we here like we we should probably walk away and Toph is like oh dear no we need to keep going <laughs> and it was really also interesting that you guys didn't catch up on until the very end too is why it also seemed not just because the the attempts were getting more aggressive but it was also getting harder to defend against and why Olo was slowly decaying is one thing you guys hadn't noticed at first is that by having walked through the flowers Y'all didn't realize that you guys had been covered in pollen from each and every one of those flowers. Right. Which was one of the flowers' defenses, is if you were covered in pollen, it actually was another physical attack to drain your def- your psychic defenses and allow them... Basically, the pollen, when you're covered in it, automatically grants contact and mind link. Okay. Because of the the way that the, I designed those flowers is if you kept on walking and you kept getting covered in the pollen, it would grant all of them automatic contact and mind link because it was a it was basically kind of like the Borg. I designed it as a collaborative psionic consciousness. Oh, right. so the more right. so the more they a... all covered you, the more you gave Frederick inability. Some flowers before you. Yeah, you that. get you yeah. You gave yeah. Fernando all of those uh, flowers. And when we finally made it back to the carriage, he had gone off, replanted the flowers, and was, like, caring for them like they were children. And we were <laughs> covered like, in flowers. It, it, covered, covered in pollen. In pollen. Like, his whole face was covered in pollen. <laughs> and his eyes were glassed over, and he was just <laughs> mumbling to himself, I gotta, I, gotta, well, I gotta water them, they'll be mad. Like, yeah. it was just, what is happening to him? But, but yeah, and then you guys eventually made it through. Um, you had that big interaction, which we're not gonna go through all the details, um, but you guys had that big interaction with um, your celestial entity uh, that you Andre. called Andre. Um, because And that's only because you guys <laughs> haven't man. decided his name yet, or you haven't figured out his name yet, or her name yet, or its name yet. He because you really don't, it doesn't know. It, it actually doesn't know its yeah. name. So, for now, um, it's Andre. Um, keep listening for more. And, um, yeah, after you guys finally had that, you um, got the opportunity to learn more the giant helped you out with your powers, which you all will listen to in episode one. Um, he helps you understand what's going on. Yeah. From there, you guys got your um, your quests and your ideas. You kind of got validation of this conspiracy. Oh, yeah. You, and brutal. you finally got Sophia to buy into all of it, because at this point, she's just been like, you're crazy, I don't know what you're talking about. And then at this point, so. she's just kind of like, you know what, shut up, let's just go. Memorized, because it's so rare that I get to use it. I get to use it then. Um, and spoiler alert, um, in true bardic fashion, Olo gets to complete some very special project that he will be working on throughout season one. Indeed. So that that is definitely indeed, something to indeed. stick around because as a bard, Olo had something that he wanted to work on, and but towards the end of uh, actually actually towards the middle of season one, like not even at the end, not fully towards the end, but. 
before the ending of season one, you actually get to complete that special project. Yeah. So, yeah, so keep much. in mind for that. Um, now, um, surprise question, since we've kind of covered everything about your characters, as a highlight, since, you know, season one's over for us in real world, and this is episode zero. IRL. And you guys got to highlight some things that the audience should pay attention to for the characters. Without giving anything away, is there anything that you want to give a shout out to? Like, I, I highlighted your little special project. Is there any highlights? Is there anything that you want to call out without giving it away? Any ideas to help make sense? Or I don't know about make sense, but things to look forward to. Um, I would say uh, beware the three doors. I hope that doesn't give too much away, but uh, that's how I feel. <laughs> that's a good one. That's how I feel. And, um, I mean, obviously the audio quality, I've already mentioned that several oh, times, Lord the audio Jesus. quality gets so much better. It's phenomenal. This is not, like, a great, like, yeah. show. Yeah, we do apologize, if you, this is your first episode, truthfully, we do apologize, um, most of season one is rough. We're working it, up to better. it, okay? We're working up to it. Vixie, a- anything about season one that you would like to highlight, warn about, a- just anything that you w- would like to let the audience know? I mean, I, I... I just find it hilarious that we we change the name of our little little helper guy so often, and I kind of want to go back and, and if you want to keep this in or not, but I kind of want to go back and like re-listen to all of our recordings to really see like how many different names do we end up using. Okay, so if 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 I don't know if I'm gonna do this, if one of you is gonna do this, or if a fan's gonna do this. I do want to put on the website, cornertablegaming.com, uh, I do want to put on a running <laughs> list. Not just a list of all the different names. I want to put a chronological list together right. of every name in order that that NPC has ever been called. Right. Dang. And that might mean in the same conversation we call them three different names because we just don't remember. That happens so the whole often. Point, the whole point is that Farnsworth will just, you know, we just don't know. <laughs> yep. Um, I think we've used that one a couple times. Yeah. So... In closing, um, any any final words from either of you? Don't trust the Hooters lady. You're just mad. Yes, I'm a little salty, okay? You're just a hater. It's a little fine. salty, it's okay? That's fine. Yeah. I, I think I think it's safe to say that y'all will find out that uh, this bard over here isn't quite as, uh, as persuasive as he thinks he is. I should be, though. I should be. <laughs> All right, well, um, thank you guys for joining me in the studio today, as if, you know, I have anybody else ever in the studio other than myself. But, um, yeah, we do all hope that you guys enjoy the rest of the show, that you enjoy season one as we are here um, talking to you from the future in season two, as we're about to begin recording. But yes, I I hope that you guys can suffer with us. I hope that you can be okay with the audio quality. Like I said, it does get better, but enjoy the show. Let us know in the comments what you guys think with whatever platform that you guys are uh, listening to this on. And we will see you enjoy episode one. Come and join us at cornertablegaming.com.